If you're listening to this podcast, you're interested in the future. How might we design new school models to better serve all young people? What are the skills and jobs of tomorrow? I recently participated in IFTF's Foresight Essentials, a great program from Institute for the Future. In this course, I got the opportunity to co-design with futures thinkers from around the world and acquired a set of tools for radical imagining, facilitating, and developing a foresight practice. You can do it too. This course is great for those looking to build something new or trying to innovate within their current role. Go to iftf.org slash foresightessentials to learn more, or just click the link in the show notes. We just reached the one-year anniversary of the rise of generative AI. And I, I think of that as the beginning of a new era of, of human and computer interaction. Uh, it's an era where computers different. Instead of computing, it's really a, a reasoning engine, a creation engine. And, and secondly, it's a change in, in the interface, in the user interface to, to a, a natural language interface from years of using a mouse and um, being limited by text. We're just at the very beginning of understanding what this new age of AI means for uh, teaching and learning and for schools. And to explore that uh, that new frontier, we have a wonderful guest with us, uh, Amanda Bickerstaff. She's the founder and CEO of AI for Education. Hey, Amanda. Hi, Tom. So good to be here with you. It's, it's really, I think this is the third time we've talked today. <laughs> it is. We, we, Amanda and the, the Getting Smart team have been on, on this uh, months long journey of trying to help schools figure out what AI means. Yes, it, it has been a fascinating journey and one in which we're all learning together. So um, it's, it's exciting to have this conversation though. Uh, Amanda, we, we've worked together on a couple of projects, but I, I was I was doing a little bit of uh, research on your interesting education bio. Um, after being a science teacher, you've had a really interesting experience of working in eight or ten different impact organizations, often young organizations, and it looks like the red thread is teacher learning. Is that is that been an important part of? The, the thread of your career, a commitment to helping teachers learn? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll be honest, I had never heard of Red Thread until I got your question. So you're you're teaching me already, Tom. Um, but Marcus, yeah, Marcus I think- Buckingham, I think, popularized it in his book, um, Love Plus Work. Um, but that, that idea of a thread runs through it. Or we could go back to William Stafford, the, the thread runs through it uh, poem. Mason will have to include that in the show notes. But is that your through line, like helping teachers learn? Yeah, it is. I think that the if you if you know me and you have worked with me, I I have this really deep need to to help. (laughs) And and, um, it's something where I actually wanted to be a doctor. Um, And then I had I was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease very young. And so that really disrupted my ability to, to do that path. And so the only thing I could think of that was that same level of care that I could give was teaching. And so I kind of, you know, I, I literally had my first interview for a teaching fellow in April of my senior year of, of 
college and then was in, you know, a classroom in July in, in the Bronx. And, you know, it was something in which it really transformed the way that I think about the world around equity, around access, around the complexity of, of, of trying to, you know, create learning environments that are truly supportive. And at the same time, I recognize at that moment that like, it's really hard to have like a functioning ecosystem for students if you don't have a functioning ecosystem for teachers. And often, you know, one of the things that's so hard to to fathom is that teachers, like there are two things that, you know, three things that everyone experiences, food, (laughs) you know, we all have food, we have like, we have medicine, and we have education. And so we have so many touch points with with education, and yet we do not treat teachers as professionals. And it has always driven me crazy. And I think that everything that I think about it is it has to be two-sided. When we talk about student agency, I think of teacher agency. We talk about student learning, I think of teacher learning. And so I've had a really amazing opportunity to build teacher learning and to respect teachers that if like there's this idea that like if you build something, it has to be like super easy or not that long or teachers have time. But if you build something that is truly like applicable and practical, even if it can be more rigorous, I have never, ever seen a case where that is not more accepted and needed and wanted than a checkbox. And I think that we just do not do that enough. And so I've tried to have that be a big part of the way that I approach my career. How did you end up running an Australian teacher learning company? Oh, man. Okay. So um, my life is weird. Um, I had um, gone out to Seattle thinking I was going to be a CEO for the first time, and that did not happen. So I moved back to New York, and I was working for a startup. And at this point, I'd worked with like every type of startup. And this was like now a Y Combinator-backed startup that didn't, it was, it was in a real like area of like change. And it was something that I just knew it wasn't quite right. It's still, it wasn't really in my core kind of K-12 teacher learning student agency. And so I went to a, we got invited to a networking event at the Australian consulate. And uh, I was having a couple conversations, including with Rose Else Mitchell, who at that point was at HMH. She is amazing. If you know, Rose, um, And we talked for like 10 minutes and she's like, have you met Belinda, who was this founder of a company called Pivot that was focused on student perceptions of teaching? And we had a 10 minute conversation and then she went one way and I went the other way. And like two weeks later, I get like, hey, can like we talk and literally they offered me your job. And so the job was like, let's think about expanding in the U.S., But at the same time, they were at this very interesting stage where they had product market fit, but they were not really a company yet. And so I went over once thinking I'd never go back to Australia. And then like I went over again a month later and they're like, would you like to be the CEO of the company, but you have to move? So I moved to Melbourne, Australia, having never been there. And I'm telling you, we we underestimate the number of acronyms in a new country around education. I straight up did not know an acronym for six months. And yeah, I got there and had my first opportunity to be a CEO. Um, I went right before lockdown. So like that wasn't great. Um, but it was such a funny like experience because like a 10 minute good conversation led me to this role that really expanded my my ability, but also like is the reason why I'm here with you today is that it taught me so much about how to build leadership, like what I cared about and like what I wanted to do next. What was the big aha moment that uh, like a year ago, you said, 
we got to drop what we're doing and and jump into this AI uh, fray and uh, and help teachers figure it out. Like, what 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 was the the origin story of AI for education? Well, this time last year, I was not thinking that Tom. I was in uh, I was in my burnout journey, so I was in Japan, uh, like fluffing about, like trying ramen and like you know having a good time. Uh, and so I actually came to this. I, it's really funny. I think that people maybe and it, it drives my co-founder crazy, like because you don't want to tell people how long you've been doing something, but. I actually didn't start using ChatGPT until March, which which for an early adopter is really not that early. Like I and I was doing two things. One of it as I like in Australia, we did research on the impact of COVID and through that we actually built an evidence-based well-being tool. That is the proudest thing I had done until now. And so I was working with a technologist to build a well-being tool using generative AI for like, you know, using it to like, we know that if there, there's one teacher, one person within a school that a student knows they can go to for help, they are most likely going to retain and succeed. And so we're thinking like, how do we create a proxy through a generative AI tool with machine learning and like much more like a safer version with transformers and not using large language models. And like then Avic kind of connect to peer matching. So it actually was like extending it into actual people. And so we're building that. And then I, I used ChatGPT for, for the first time. And it's like a like a light bulb went off. It's kind of the very, you know, silly, you know, thing. But I realized we've been talking about the transformational capacity of ed tech forever. And I used it once to build a rubric. And when it formatted a rubric in 10 seconds in a, in a table, I was like, this is it. This is, this is what we have been talking about that is going to change the way we teach and learn. And then I had this moment of like existential fear where I was like, oh no, there, this is going to be, this is not intuitive. This is not better Google. This is, what are we going to do? And so I started a website at the same time never built a website before. I created a prompt library, having no idea what prep libraries were, put into the world. And when it came down to it, like what I learned, it was kind of interesting having starting to build a tool on one end and then also building more of like a service and content business is that I just didn't feel like the technology was ready for the thing I wanted to do. And so it made it a pretty easy choice to instead focus on the actual training and content and upskilling of people um, and so that's what happened. So when June started working full time and. So what, what does AI mean for teachers and teaching and teacher learning? It, how, how do you, how do you now think about the job of teaching in this new age? You know, it is a fascinating question and one that I think will keep us up at night for a little while to say the least. I think that the first thing that it means is it it means a disruption to what school has been for over a hundred years. And we're talking big, big, big disruption. If you have if you are an English language teacher, I am so sorry. I'm sure you've had moments of existential crisis as well, like some nihilism as well about like what does this mean? 
um, for my students and like writing. If you're a college admissions person and you're thinking about college essays, if you are, you know, even a science teacher and lab reports, you're having this real like moment where the traditional ways we assess students have been very like language based and very outcome based. And what's happened is we now have these tools that can do those types of actions actually really, really well. And in some cases better than like we can. And so it's changed. It's causing this major, major disruption, but without any, like there hasn't been like an incremental change where it's like, okay, so we need to change this piece. And now we're moving from like, we went from predictive text to entire essays. There was no in-between where it's predictive paragraph or a thesis statement. Like that didn't happen. We went all the way up, up And so I think that that's where we see like all this like very kind of like I actually think quite, you know, it's real like the anxiety around how students are learning, how they how how they're going to express their learning, how they're going to cognitive offload in ways never before. So there's that aspect of it that I think gets this. What we're doing is we're collapsing this idea of like AI is for cheating. AI is for plagiarism. AI is for shortcuts and those types of things, which is just a reduction, a way for us to understand it first. And that's why we saw these reactions to to banning in New York City. And then my favorite part, Tom, is unbanning in New York City is like now every individual school has to unban it on their own. And they can like, the only person that has control is a principal. And then like they can turn it off and on. So it's like not really, really unbanned in that sense. Um, but then on the other side, and this is the thing that we wanted to talk when we talked about the prep over this, is that there's also this really amazing thing where schools are the hardest they've ever been for not just students, but teachers. We all we have done, we have we have just kept adding more stuff. We've and we keep and we haven't taken away. So it's like, okay, you teach, but now it's gonna have standardized testing. And now we're gonna have a whole bunch of like grading to do, and now we're gonna have reporting, and now we're gonna have IAP planning. And what we've done is we've just buried people in the administrative work and we keep adding and adding. There's so much possibility now of taking away some of that time and effort and that cognitive load for teachers in meaningful ways while potentially also, and this is the best thing we can see, them using it not just to shortcut, but to make better. And I think that that's where I get really, really excited. So let, let's um, dive into a, a, two different categories. The, the first one would be maybe learner experience design. Um, are you excited about that? Nervous about that? About using tools to design learning experiences? Second one would be related to that would be teacher assistance. Um, that might be both prep, t- classroom prep. It might be real-time teaching assistance. It might be teacher feedback. I think that the learning experience design is by far the thing that is closest to what's possible right now. I think that it, it I don't think it, it still requires expertise. And this is the thing I think we miss when we talk about generative AI because it does have these capabilities, but they're really uneven. So if you want to use the terminology that Ethan Mollick came up with um, that was in the paper about BCG is this idea of jagged frontier. Like it's not like it can do a five paragraph essay, but if you count, ask it to count the words... It can't. And so I think that it still requires an expertise. Like it doesn't, for example, if you're using ChatGPT or another tool, you know what it can't do very well is time. It, it, it will tell you that something's going to take four minutes and it will take 35. Like it's even worse than new teachers where we're like, oh my God, we should totally do like 17 things in a classroom and you realize you could do two. Um, and so I think that these are the opportunities where I do see, whether it's with our prompt library, other tooling that 
people are going a step beyond. And one of my favorite like anecdotes is, and I know this is important to, to getting smart into you, is this idea of like student choice and agency and like more authentic kind of assessments. And one of the things I, I loved is in a school in Queens, you know, low income, you know, uh, complex environment. And we were doing a session right at the beginning of the school year and a teacher used one of our prompts, which is just like an open prompt around exit tickets. And we're talking like low level stuff. Like we're not talking about brain, you know, brain busting, high level, complex prompting. And she came out with, she's like the exit ticket we've designed, like says like, you use these exit tickets, but you give student like information and interest and all these things. And so she came out with five good exit tickets. And her response was not like, I'm going to pick the best exit ticket. It was like, I'm going to give students all five. And the look of like happiness on her face was like, I have always wanted to give my students choice, but I barely can do one. And to do this in the same amount of time, if not less. And I think that that's where we're seeing, like it doesn't have to be groundbreaking. It doesn't have to be completely retooling the entire learner experience and the methodologies that we have, which I do think we'll need to do. But it is like, how do we do these things better and more interesting, more engaged, take into account student needs in ways that are deep and meaningful and consistent? Like, I'm really excited about that. Um, and there, I think we'll see more and more tools. Like we talked about this briefly, but like there's a, a couple areas in which we're throwing cash at and definitely the learner experience design is one of those. Um, and I think we'll continue to see an investment in that and better tools. Well, in, in that learner experience design category, I'm excited about um, the, the creative options. Um, and yet you and I both see a lot of, automating bad 20th century pedagogy. Like if you want to kick out bad worksheets fast, this is a really good way to do it. So I, I, I just super appreciate your expertise is still required that you can get some really good results, but you do have to apply your teaching brain to the, the suggested lesson, both in terms of what you do, how long it takes, because that, that's a clear problem today. Is AI going to be a useful instructional partner, coach, feedback provider for teachers? Um, I think something like like an instructional coach, I think we'll see more and more, especially as text to image, image to text, um, you know, voice to text and voice to image. Um, it's going to be these kind of generative AI ways of working for those that may not know. It means that it just opens up things like, here's my, you know, students, you know, piece, and this is my feedback, and it was written, I no longer have to worry about it being in a document, I can just upload it, like take a picture of it and get feedback on it. Like that suddenly starts to make these things so much easier. And like, I can do them better and, and, and more often. Something like a teacher assistant, though, where it's something like the Merlin Mind um, wand, or what I don't know what it's called, and the ability to like move um, around the classroom. I think untethering a teacher from the front of the classroom is a really good idea. And we've become so attached to our smart boards and our tablets that that seems really, really useful. I'm excited about the idea of, of having like a, an education specific large language model. I think I just would love to see it be much more open and not require like techno like not require hardware for something that's very software based because I do think very strongly that equity is a huge issue right now 
GPT-4 is not, not only is it closed to up like people actually getting in there and, and signing up, but it is leaps and bounds better. And it is too expensive for almost every school in this country and definitely in other countries uh, like lo- the global South. And so what by creating another space in which it's, it's inaccessible or like something like Conmigo that has, I think, a relatively high price point, not that it can't have value, I start to really worry about this because I think these tools really become a commodity pretty quickly. But if we keep all the great stuff behind these massive paywalls um, because compute costs are so high or whatever, I think it starts to get really tricky in terms of like, will this actually really, really change and transform the school experience as much as it could? Let's talk about learner experience. A lot of enthusiasm, at least in in the investment uh, space of, of behind these robo tutors, um, you know, every kid having a, a, a learning assistant, uh, an AI tutor, you bullish on that or what? I actually had a conversation about this today and I am, I think that we will go towards personalized learning and individual, like individual teaching agents. I think we will go to that eventually. So an agent being a, a, a generative AI tool that can work on its own. Like it, ha- like it actually can, it's not like a chat bot where I have to put a lot of things in, but it actually says like, here, Tom, like we're going to help you. Like, I know we have issues around passive voice or whatever, and we're going to work together. Not that he has, he's a great writer, but you know, that's something like that. And I think we're going to see more and more of that. I think that, <laughs> you know, what's really interesting is that there's a huge, like, you know, the research shows that like tutoring as a thing is actually not good. Like, it's not like tutoring, like giving someone a tutor is actually something that has impact. It's like high impact, high dosage, uh, you know, I, there's, there's support of small group tutoring, but the really strong evidence is like one-on-one tutoring, which is almost completely the remit, like the place where the only people have access to that is very high wealth individuals. And so there is something, I think, about the idea of giving a student that access to that type of, uh, of, of tutoring plus augmented by a human but I think that like we, the tools that exist right now, like generative AI is really bad at following rules. It's really bad at like complex reasoning. It's, it wants to give you the answer. It's something called sycophancy. Like it actually, if you said like, you know, my grandma wants, like really needs this answer, that bot will give you the answer. Um, so I think that we're not really there yet. I don't, th- I think that it's a worthy goal and the evidence base of intelligent tutoring with AI is strong. I just think that maybe generative AI isn't actually the technology that underpins it. I think that generative AI is just like a, a wrapper that makes it better, but it isn't the right technology to build on. Pleased to see the transparency from the uh, Conmigo team at, at Khan Academy, where they've talked openly about the real challenges of trying to build a smart tutor on top of GPT-4. It's tough. It's not quite ready for prime time, right? No, it's not. And it's it's amazing that they put it out so quickly and they are being transparent. And it has improved. I mean, there was some real questions about the, the appropriateness of some of their responses, but it's just not what generative AI is good at. And I think it's so interesting because generative AI is like good at some really cool things that we think it's going to be good at everything. But I do think that there's this like, maybe the hype cycle is less about the impact of generative AI, but more like what it actually can do 
without really thinking deeply about it, what it should do. And like the places in which it really does have enormous value, because I don't know if you saw today, Tom, but there's a new paper that was out about the, the impact of the environment of these tools. Um, and so like image generation, like a thousand images is like driving four miles, which is kind of crazy. Usually it's like for like a search engine, it was 0.0003, I think. So we're talking like enormous, enormous differences that, and one of the things that's problem is that we have these big, big models like ChatGPT that are not their kind of generalist. And so it costs so much more in terms of actual costs to people, but also environmental costs to do those instead of coming down and creating these smaller, these smaller fine-tuned models. And I think that this is where I think we're the the newness of the tool, the excitement of the tool, the hype of the tool, ChatGPT, like the Conmigo said, oh, GPT-4 is coming out. Look at all these things we could do. But then the last year, what have they seen? Like or the last eight months? It can be inappropriate if you ask, if you answer the wrong question a couple of times, it'll just give you the answer. It can be in, inconsistent. It can have bias because that's the, what the tools are right now. And Amanda, you know, we, we both um, suffered through some demos of watching AI tutors automate the instruction in hand calculations in mathematics, calculations that I would argue are um, are obsolete as as set of learning goals. So I, I don't know. My my take is it's it's a good time to reconsider what kids need to know and be able to do in the age of smart machines. Um, but we have a lot of people rushing towards automating old pedagogy. So I mean, I think. Like I said, I think we need a graveyard picture. We'll use we'll use Dolly three. Well, I'll only use it once, so it won't be that big of an impact on the environment. But like to do like a graveyard of some of these like bad pedagogies that like I really like, and I say this like, why is it not a four paragraph essay or a six paragraph essay? It's a five paragraph essay because it's a construct, and it's a construct that's been around for a long time. And I think that we know that things like authentic assessment, and I know that you are all in. I believe like and this like creating real connections between students and life and community and problem solving and like teaching these skills that are going to go way beyond the classroom. I mean, when I like Tom and I are working together and, you know, I have a big report due. It's not like I had that report due only once on a Tuesday at 3 p.m. And that's my test. Like I have to like submit that report and then remember that report and use it and apply it. But we've created these structures that like really don't replicate what happens outside the classroom. And then it even is stuck not only in like K-12, but like it only happens between K to three and then K to six. And then like like we've we've segmented even down to grade bands and, and subjects. And I think that this is this idea right now that money is being thrown and compute and uh, time and effort is being thrown at automating and or um yeah, automating and making quicker things is like we're making quicker things that are bad pedagogy or actually can be harmful to students or don't work. I mean, test scores have been stagnant before COVID and have like, and not just in the US and Australia where I was, like it's, you know, places that have significant resources, right? Are, are, and it, what we find is like, there's really like a lot of practices that don't seem to actually make like to help students learn the skills of the future. 
um, or even help them learn the skills that we, now we say are important, like standardized testing. Like we're not even doing a good job of teaching to the test, knowing that that's what has happening. We can't even teach the test, Tom. Like, you know, and so if we can't do that well, like what, are, what hope do we have? And so we have to reframe these things. Like, I don't want to teach to a test anymore, but like, what should we teach to? And like, there's a chance that like high school becomes something completely different, like something that is just radically, radically different in seven to eight years. Like, can we have, can we work together to get to that place? And what, what are because the, we're going to have to. What the, right. What, so what are the beneficial aspects of that view? Where, where is AI going to help young people, if, if not learn more faster, do more uh, f- faster? What, how, how is AI going to improve, particularly high school learning and, and the output and outcomes of high school learning? It's really interesting. I think I'm more confident in K to six, even K to four. I think that elementary, like I know really good tools are being built for early reading and early math that are going to help with that fundamental skill building like never before. And I'm really excited about those that are coming. I think for high school, what we're going to see is like a real shift into like the, the 21st century skills, so to speak, but like collaboration not just between people, but between bots and people, like actual true collaboration between technology and people. And if the, if the new computer language is English, which hopefully it also becomes other languages as we get to more diversity and like it actually being more representative of our, our you know, our entire world, is that like, it means that like students will be computer scientists in different ways, right? They will be interacting with these bots, whether directly or not, like, and I think this idea that all of this will be anticipatory and the little bot on your shoulder, like, I don't think that's really going to happen yet. I think prompt engineering will change, but the ways in which you interact, you understand how to leverage uh, AI and tooling in different ways to augment you instead of replace, um, I think is going to be really interesting. And I think what we're going to see is like a real opportunity to help students actually be more prepared for the world. And I think there's going to be more opportunity for the electives the things that students tend to really enjoy to maybe come into the core, right? And and even some of the stuff we don't spend a lot of time with, like financial literacy, entrepreneurship, um, you know, other pieces. But I think that that create that those creative aspects of of our of our schooling, especially in high school, will shift into the core because some of the other skills around early reading, like like math and reading and writing, will will be augmented, and so they'll be different, and they might not need to take them, like you know three hours of your school day. But now what we could do is like, what are the actual things that like are going to lead you to better success, higher quality of, of life, happiness. It'd be great for schools to, to build happiness um, in more, you know, significant way. So that would be my hope. Like you called me a pessimist earlier today. So I am also an optimist, um, I, but I think I it's going to take work. Picture. All right. So what, what should schools do? School systems, like I, what, what's the roadmap? look like? How do they get started? Oh, man. The first thing is like, teach your people about AI. Okay. So um, AI literacy for me is the name of the game. Um, these are like we talked about it. These are not intuitive technologies. So just thinking that you can throw people into the world and say, hey, you're going to be an expert or even know how to use these tools. I see people fail so many times where they just don't know how to use the chatbots, And that's the chosen interface right now. So we can't really get around that. Um, but what I'd say is like, 
you know, one of the things is 84% of us interact with AI every day without realizing it. So you can actually situate this in a much more like traditional sense. You can, I, and you're, when you're building that AI literacy, we, we do something kind of funny where we do this work around the, the world now. And in the first 30 minutes, we do what are like we hit every major concern that an educator has in a structured manner through a myths and facts exercise. We don't even get out of the first half an hour without saying things like, "Will AI replace teachers? Do AI detection uh, tools work? Uh, you know, will like are these tools thinking? Are they biased?" And so like giving like actually acknowledging and giving a constructive way to work through concerns that are very valid is really important and then the last piece is you build value these tools can make teachers lives easier do that help them do that and so i think that that's the first thing is like build ai literacy and then i think from there it's building these like mindsets and guidelines about appropriate use because these tools are not responsibly made in a way in which we would hope like especially right now there's a lot of things that don't work there's some things that can be quite harmful and some things that require an enormous amount of knowledge to understand even what is going on so like having some guidelines and mindsets about how to double check how to keep your expertise in the middle how to um, evaluate outputs and know when to use it and I, it's kind of funny, like I'm not talking just about like those two things. It's not just about teachers and leaders, it's about students. And we take the same approach to both. And then I think the next piece is like actually identifying great use cases and pilots and opportunities to see what works and doesn't work in structured and supported ways. Because this is the exciting part. Like we see some really cool stuff that's happening. And we also see sometimes when these tools fail, your kids will get so much more out of it failing and understanding that they shouldn't just fully trust these tools that they have to be critical users. And like, it can be so much fun and creative, but I don't think it's possible to go into like pedagogy first or even potentially, and this is why we only see about 10% of schools actually have policies in place, starting with policy. What I think we see instead is like, what are like, let's level set and create a common understanding of what generative AI is where it's come from, what are the key concerns, and then let's show people. It's a show, not tell time. Let's actually show people, give them opportunity to use these tools. So the takeaway for teachers would be get get knowledgeable about these new tools, what they do, what they don't do, when and how to use them. The takeaway for system leaders, school leaders, uh, I, I guess I, I participated last week as a school leader was hosting a community conversation about Gen AI, what it is, what it means, how it changes learning expect. That feels like a pretty good next step for ed leaders if they haven't done it. Is that sound right to you? Is it time for a community conversation? Yes, and I think that you'll the more cross-functional you can make those conversations, the better. By far, the best conversations I've had have been with students around AI ethics. Like they get it like nobody but like nobody else. And so I think having and pulling in those diverse voices is really important. And then also just not expecting that anyone has the same knowledge. And so like, there's no shortcuts here where you can't say like, oh, my superintendents or my leaders or my instructional coaches know what this means. And so you have to take those same steps everywhere. You can't, you can't shortcut anything right now. I, I appreciate the, the focus on student voice. And is that high school students? What about middle school students? They need to... 
I just, we, there was a, a new um, research study that was published today on the UK. It's called the Online Report. Of, and it has a whole section on gender of AI and young people. And 40% of the young people between 7 and 12 that were, um, were part of the study had used Snapchat AI. So I think we have to go even younger. Um, and so um, it's in Roblox now. We have AI in Roblox and other things. So I think that their like, idea of AI literacy starting much younger. No. Hey, we've been talking to Amanda Bickerstaff. She's the CEO at AI for Education. That's AIforeducation.io, right? Is that the best place to go for uh, more information? Yeah, that or you can follow me on LinkedIn. Like I'm, we're, we try to post uh, daily um, practical resources and some thought leadership pieces. But we have a whole host of resources that are almost almost everything we do is free. So you can find everything that we do on our website, including a webinar that's going to be coming up with Tom on the 20th. Um, of our, uh, so, uh, yeah, that's a great place to find our work. I appreciate all the resources that you produced early in this Frey, and thanks for making those uh, widely available. Uh, it's been a treat to catch up with you, Amanda. Thanks. Thank you so much, Tom. And thanks to our producer, Mason Pasha, and the whole Getting Smart team for making this possible. Until next week, keep learning, keep leading, keep innovating for equity. Thanks for tuning in to the Getting Smart podcast today. We want this podcast to be actionable, insightful, and a great way to learn about what's next in learning. In order to stay on the cutting edge, we need people in the field to tell us what they're hearing, what they're wanting, and what they're needing to learn more about. Got a topic or a guest in mind? Send your recommendations to me, Mason at GettingSmart.com. And if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave a review in Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you listen. Feel free to share the podcast on social media using the hashtag GSPodcasts. Thanks so much.